Well, we're in a series that we're calling Unstoppable because as Christians, we recognize that we're a part of something that God has been doing for over 2,000 years now. Despite the hostility and resistance that's been there all along, God just keeps building his church and expanding his kingdom all over the world. But just because Christianity and the church of Jesus Christ cannot be stopped does not mean there hasn't been casualties along the way. And it certainly does not mean that we can just kick back and shift into cruise control as if we don't have a real enemy and don't need to live carefully and prayerfully. God's kingdom is unstoppable, not us. Christians are going down left and right. I want to show you how not to be one of them. I do not want to be one of them. I want to finish well as a part of God's unstoppable kingdom. So that's what I want to talk to you about today. And to get it done, I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. So go there in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6 and follow along as I read verses 10 to 20. Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done everything to stand, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, before we dive in, Let me do a little background because we're jumping in at the end of a letter. It's always best to get the whole deal, but we're jumping in at the end of a letter. So let me help you out. In Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, Paul has just given us some of the most glorious run-on sentences of all that God has done for us. Who he is and what he's done. English teachers would just go nuts in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. It's almost like he cannot come up with enough modifying clauses to tag on and tag on and tag on because it's so good who God is and what he's done for us in his son, Jesus Christ. And it's basically, he captures the gospel in detail and just lifts it like a beautiful gem and lets the light hit all the cuts and colors and carrots and contours and says, oh my goodness, look at this. Look at this, look at this, look at this. He doesn't tell you anything to do. He just tells you what God has done. But then, in chapter 4, it's a turning point. And most of Paul's letters are this way, by the, by the way. Indicatives, indicatives, indicatives. Look what God's done. Therefore, here's what he calls you to do. Chapter 4 is the turning point where he begins to say, Now, in light of that, live like this. 
How should we now live? Live like this. And so he begins to tick through some practical stuff in daily living about marriage and about parenting and about the workplace and relationships with coworkers and bosses and employees. And then we get this passage at the end of chapter 6 that we just read where he says, finally. And instead of finally, instead of saying sincerely, your friend, Paul, signing off. He says, finally. And he heads into this section about spiritual warfare. And here's, the, here's what I don't want you to do. This was never intended to be a, an appendix on the end of his letter. Like, oh, oh, by the way, those of you that just might be interested in demons and spiritual warfare and all that. Here's some information. It's not a new subject. Here's what he's doing. He is saying this marriage you're working on, this parenting thing you're doing, that workplace working with other people out in the marketplace, you need to be aware of the key players in all those situations are never just the people you can see with the naked eye. There's always more. He wants you to understand if you're going to live out the gospel in your marriage and live out the gospel in your parenting and live out the gospel in the marketplace, you better understand that all these horizontal relationships you're working on, there is also an equally real vertical vertical level of spiritual warfare that is going on every day surrounding all your earthly relationships as you seek to live out the gospel. I'm not saying that to scare you folks. I'm saying that to prepare you for how to live. If you knew you were going into a war and you are, how would you dress? How would you think? What would you do? That's what Paul's trying to help us here with. And so here's what I want to do. I want to give you what I think are four strategies that Paul shares with us for how to live out the gospel in all our earthly relationships and how to not become a spiritual casualty, folks. Christian men and women are going down left and right. I don't know if you picked up on that. Pastors are going down. Christians are going down. People that you say, I thought they loved Jesus are leaving the faith or committing adultery or embezzling money or just being stupid. Sin will make you stupid. How are you not going to be one of those? Four strategies. Number one. Here's the first. Number one, you better wake up to the fact that you're not living in peacetime. But you're in the middle of a spiritual war that is raging all around you. And it's been going on for 2,000 years now. Here's what I think sometimes we don't appreciate or realize. It is not wrong to make much of the peace you have with God. We just went through Romans Oh my goodness, it's glorious. And Romans 5, 6, and 7, and 8 are really all about, you have peace with God now. Your sin has been removed. No condemnation. You've got a robe of righteousness. God's wrath doesn't hang over you. Hallelujah. Peace with God. But here's what sometimes we don't recognize. The moment you came into peace with God, Satan declared war on you. When you were lost, folks, you were a slave to sin, lights out, darkness. You're not a contender. You're not a threat to his kingdom. There's nothing you're going to do that, that scares him. Now that you're alive in Christ and the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ is in you and God has given you spiritual gifts and the resurrected Jesus lives in you and your mind is being renewed and God is calling you to go and make disciples, you're a threat and he's against you. Now, greater is he that is in us than he's in the world, right? So I'm not saying curl up in a ball and don't leave the home. Leave the home, but don't leave the home spiritually naked, undressed for the war. That's what Paul wants us to understand. There is a war. You're in the middle of a war. If you're a believer here and you love Jesus and you have peace with God, 
then Satan is at war with you. He's against you. And so your life could be characterized a lot by the classic, by Tolstoy, war and peace. And we don't get 1,300 pages and 4.4 million words like Tolstoy gave us. But you've got Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. And you've got other places in the scripture that says, listen, there's a war. You're in a war. Dress for battle. First strategy is just to wake up to this fact. And let me point out something to you about this war. All wars are messy, confusing, tragic, costly. But some are more messy and confusing than others. Like what was fought in Vietnam. Any of you that fought there and understand that at all? Why? I'll tell you why. It's the same kind of war that we're in. It's the same kind of war that we're in here. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Notice in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. What image comes to your mind? Military, soldier, battle. Well, then look at verse 12. For we wrestle not. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But what's going on, Paul? You just changed metaphors on us. Be careful. Track with the same illustration, dude. You went from soldier, military to athletic wrestling. If you're thinking that, you'd be wrong. Because here's what he did. In verse 12, when it says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The word wrestle in the Greek right there is a word that means, bless you. To grapple in close range, hand to hand combat. Are there soldiers that wrestle? Oh yeah. What kind of soldiers? Desperate ones that are on the front lines where things have gotten so close. We've thrown down our guns. We're not shooting each other. We're upon each other. And it's hand to hand combat in wrestling that sometimes leads to being thrown to the ground in a life and death struggle. That's the kind of war you're in. It's at close range. It's messy. It's hand to hand combat, Paul says. You're in a war. You're in a war. Let me show you the second strategy that he gives us. You need to realize that you're, if you're a Christian and you're here and you know Jesus and you have peace with God, you're enlisted already. You didn't have to sign up. You're enlisted. But it's your choice whether or not you're going to engage in this battle every day. You say, Brad, how do you get that? I get it from four words that Paul uses. There's a word in that passage he uses four times. When God's word repeats itself, I make a note of it. There's a reason. Just like in Ephesians 5 when it says, husbands, love your wives. We say, got it. He says, no, you don't. Husbands, love your wives. Got it. You still don't. Husbands. You ever notice that? He tells husbands to love their wives three times in Ephesians 5. Why? Because we do it so poorly. And we don't get it. And we think we do, but we don't. Here's something else going on right here in the same book. In Ephesians 6, he says, stand. He uses the word stand four times. And here's the interesting thing. It's the Greek word histomy, from which we get our English word antihistamine for allergies. And it means to stand against, to resist, to block. Paul says in verse 10, look at it. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Verse 13, take up the whole armor of God. He's going to use it twice in one verse. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done everything to say it. Stand, And then it's like he says, let me say it one more time because I don't think you've got it. And so he starts verse 14 with the same word he ended verse 13 on. Stand, therefore. Stand, 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 stand. Why? 
Because Christians don't. It's not automatic, folks. If you're not intentional, and if you don't choose to engage and realize there's a war, you could just go with the flow. You could just kick back, lay back. Don't. Now, now don't make the mistake. Don't hear me saying, so, be obnoxious at work. Just be obnoxious from the moment you wake up. Scream, yell, placards that say faggots go to hell. No. No. If I see you from our church, I'm going to pull my car over, smack you, take you to the ground. We'll do some hand-to-hand combat. (laughs) I'm taking that sign out of your hand. We're going to do a Bible study. That's not how you do it. But But the image is you're going to war. You've got an enemy. You need to lean into this and think I'll have to be intentional rather than just letting it go and going with the flow. Stand, therefore, having done all things, stand in the evil day. Are we in an evil day? If you're waiting for bad times, news alert, we're there. It's dark, it's wicked, it's evil. But praise God, he has us on purpose for such a time as this in this point in history. And he's showing us that he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. But we better put it into practice. You're enlisted if you're a believer. But it's your choice as to whether or not you're going to engage in the battle each day. I want you to engage and to be intentional. Because it won't just happen. Number three strategy. You need to recognize who your real enemy is and what his favorite strategies are. If you know anything about wars, if you do any reading of history, this is not just true about a spiritual war. It's true about any war. The first and greatest tactic is to identify who the real enemy is. And often it's not what you think at first glance. Those that really understand this and want to win, slow down and say, wait a minute, those are just the worker bees. I want the head of the snake. I want to really, really destroy the enemy. It can take some time sometimes to figure out who is behind this, who is the real enemy, and then you're still not done. Once you believe you've identified the real enemy who's driving this, you still wait, and you go to school on your enemy, and you do homework And you assess, what are his tactics? How does he usually attack? What should I expect? I don't want to be fooled. What does this look like? What is his history? What are his habits? What are his patterns? Paul's saying, you better know who the real enemy is. And you better know what his real strategies are if you're going to do well in this war. See, he tells us, he zeroes right in on this. Look at it in the end of verse 11. He tells us, your real enemy is not your wife, is not your husband, is not your boss. It's not that man down the street in the neighborhood. It's Satan. End of verse 11. Stand against the wiles of the devil. And then you learn some more news in verse 12. Satan's not alone. So it's, it's probably fair to say, probably none of us have been personally attacked or harassed with Satan himself. He can be in one place at one time. He's not omnipresent like God. Hallelujah. But verse 12 tells us he's not alone. Look at verse 12. He's not alone. Our enemy has resources. Verse 12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, against principalities, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Woo! Now don't make this mistake. Here's what people have done. Entire books have been written. You can find them at the Christian bookstore or buy them online. Don't. 
dividing those four phrases up and, and saying what this is. And there's a prince over Campbell County and there's a demon over Kenton County. Figure out what county you live in and what demon it is and call him by name and name it in Jesus. And <laughs> That's the only way you're going to win. It's all sheer speculation, folks. Sheer speculation. Notice in this passage, he gives us one verse that tells us about our enemy and his forces. And all the other verses just tell you what to do to get ready. God will take care of all the rest of that. You don't need to go nuts with a bizarre, overly complicated spiritual warfare mindset and manual. That's what Christians do because it's interesting. But it's all speculation. Now, here was the effect that it was supposed to have on you. You want to know what verse 12 was supposed to do to you? If you hear it as it's being read and you think... Against principalities, we're not done. Against powers, not yet. Against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. If it makes you feel overwhelmed and you think there's myriads of wicked workers and dark angels, there's layer after layer after layer, like wave after wave of dark enemy army angels. Oh my goodness, I'm outgunned, I'm outmanned, I'm outmaneuvered. I don't have what I need to win this war. Bingo. Yes, feel free to feel that way. So that you'll get serious about applying the rest of this passage. He never meant for you to go nuts with a Bible study to figure out what those four phrases are. Go nuts figuring out how to live out the rest of that passage. That is very clear what you got to do. Put on the whole armor of God. Take up the whole armor of God. Above all, lift the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit. Praying with all supplication in the spirit. Go nuts about how to live that out and say, I got to know what that means. I got to know what that looks like. I got to have time to put that in place. I need other believers at close range like in a, oh gee, small group who are also trying to do that, who would help me and share their ideas and we could pray together. That's what he wants you to do. Satan is our enemy. He's not alone. And listen to me. He is a very seasoned and street savvy opponent. He didn't just start thinking about this yesterday, folks. He's no novice. Satan has been working on how to destroy and deceive you for centuries longer than you've even been resisting him. He's been watching human beings, men and women, and putting together the perfect way to deceive us and to destroy us. He knows us. And so that's what I want you to see next. You need to understand, what is his favorite strategy? And here's what I would say to you. He rarely comes at us head on. Listen to me. That's why you are not likely to experience a situation of demon possession where you in the name of Jesus need to cast a demon out of somebody. You are likely to live your whole life and never do that and don't let someone convince you, well, you should have been doing it all along. You should have been casting out demons left and right. Not likely. There's other countries where he's chosen to manifest himself that way. Here, he's smarter than that. He rarely comes at us head on, folks, because he knows us. Most Christians are alert to any direct obvious assault on their faith and morals. So that's not how he does it. But let me show you how he operates. Look at verse 11 again. Look at the word wiles. Be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That word wiles is the Greek word methodius, from which we get our word method or methodology. And it means a systematic, well thought out, logical plan. Your enemy is not willy nilly. So neither should you be. We've got Christians that aren't even thinking this through. Just roll out of bed. 
You can roll out of bed. I'm roll out of bed. Run a comb through your hair if you got it. Suck a pop tart down and head out the door. Not reading the Bible. Not praying. Not getting armed up. Not recognize you're heading into a war. He is systematic, logical, and he's thought this through as to the best way to take us down. And here's what he's concluded, folks. He does, he's learned don't startle us and don't do things that you would see readily. So here's something I want to share with you. Atheism is not our biggest opponent. Atheism is not the greatest concern I have. Like, oh, what's going to happen if more young atheists begin to speak so boldly and write books and do conferences? Nothing. And here's why. The human heart knows there's a God. And the human heart craves worship because we're created in his image. We are worshipers by nature and we long for something more than the stuff and relationships of this world. So atheism by its very nature is not the best strategy because you've got to convince people there isn't a God and yet they know there is. And you've got to convince them don't be a worshiper and they are. What's his favorite strategy, you say, Brad? Idolatry. That's why you don't see tons of verses about atheism through the Bible. In fact, they're very short and they're very simple. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Bam. That's all God has to say about atheists. Fool. Idolatry. Huge passages. Old Testament and New Testament. Because God knows we'll get sucked into idolatry far quicker than we do atheism. You say, Brad, why? Because it feels right. We are worshipers. So Satan, what? listen to me, he goes with what he knows is already what feels right to us. Worship feels right. So let me switch metaphors here a little bit like with martial arts. I am not one, but I have listened to those that are. If I understand it correctly, the, the deal with martial arts, unlike boxing, is that you don't seek to just completely stop your opponent with another blow that counters his blow. You go with their own power and what they're doing and you just make a deft little move to use their own power that was going to harm you to simply turn it on them and throw them to the mat. That's what he does. He knows we're already prone and hardwired for and default setting for, I want more in life than just this and I want to worship something. I want to build my world around something. I want to prize and treasure and protect and promote something He says, perfect. Just make sure it's not the one true living God. And so he takes things in this world that are good. And he gets you to turn them into a God. If a good thing becomes a God thing, it's now a very bad thing. That will crush you, leave you disappointed. And here's the other thing that he loves about idolatry, folks. Idolatry doesn't just impact you. It impacts the all the people around you, especially those closest to you. Your idolatry brings confusion and conflict because you want other people to help you get what you're wanting and you're saying, what's wrong with what I want? I just want to be married. Isn't that a good thing? I just want a a godly marriage. Isn't that a good thing? I want all my kids to follow Jesus. Isn't that a good thing? I want to have enough money to know that I can retire. And Nothing wrong with any of that until it becomes, I don't just want it. I have to have it. I'm building my world around it. I'm putting all my hopes in that. And it will crush you, enslave you, destroy you, disappoint you, and wreak havoc all around you. Here's what I think is interesting where I'm getting this. In verse 12, let me show you in verse 12. 
Those phrases, powers, principalities, rulers of darkness, that phrase, rulers of the darkness of this world, is a Greek word, cosmocrator, taken from cosmos, world, and kratos, create. Satan is a little God creator. And he's constantly trying to put before you a little substitute God and say, look, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. Go for that. Make your whole world about that. Put all your hopes in that. If he can get you, read Romans 1 again, if he can get you to exchange the goodness and glory of the one true living God for something created in this world, even if it's something God created and gave us this good, he's a master at this. Is sex good? That was weak. Yes. Yes. But he takes it and he twists it and says, if it's good, then let's just do this with anyone, anytime, anywhere. The more, the better. Or even in a marriage, let's live for this. I live for this pleasure. It's got to be off the chart every time, all the time. It's like, it's, it's a good thing that God gave us, but don't build your whole world around this and don't take it outside of the, of the understanding and the guidelines God gave us for where it's good. If you're here and you're single and you say, oh, I long to be married. I want to be married. Good thing. Normal thing. God-given thing. God gave us marriage. God's a relational being. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They enjoy each other in a relationship. It's not weird that you would want relationship. But watch this. If I would love to be married ceases being a desire... And you start, and sadly I've heard it said, believing I am incomplete until I find my soulmate, that human being that I'll marry. Let me help you. We already were in Colossians. You are complete in Christ. He's the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. And now you have a desire that you might enjoy someone else that's complete in him. And so you hold it loosely and say, oh God, I do have this desire. But if Satan can get you to shift beyond that and begin to wake up every day saying, why am I not married? Why am I at my 16th wedding and I don't want to buy another pair of shoes that matches all the bridegroom's dress? I want to be the bride or I want to be the groom. And God, you're not good until I get that. I won't have joy and peace until I get that. I won't serve you. And you turn it into an idol. This and this alone will satisfy me. Disaster. If you're married, it's a good thing. But if you begin to say, oh, now I'm married. And you neglect your relationship with Christ. And you start to say, I'm looking to her for everything. I'm so needy. Meet my needs. Help me to be all that I was meant to be. She's going to like, Marriage was never designed to meet all your needs and fulfill your dreams. And yada, 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 yada. Marriage is broken. There's a hole in the bottom of the marriage bucket. Doesn't matter how many conferences you go to, books you read, what you learn, it leaks. Nothing in this world did God design to fully satisfy you. Jesus. And then I appreciate and enjoy a leaky marriage. Jesus. And then I'm grateful for, are children a good thing? But should they become a God thing where you say, I've built my whole world around my children. I I hear it come out of women's mouths, women who say they're Christians. I live for my children. Oh, please stop. Oh, wow, that's scary. 
See, here's what Satan understands. Once he figures out, I think she lives for her kids. She doesn't just love them and enjoy them. And it's one of her roles. She's a person in Christ and then she's a mother. And oh, by the way, she's a wife. Sometimes they forget that too. Wife before children. Without him, you ain't got these kids. But it's like, I'm a mother. He's like, perfect. Now all he has to do is to get one of your sinful children to go off the reservation. And your heart is not just hurting and heavy, you are devastated. Because your whole identity was tied to your children and their success. And your whole sense of satisfaction and joy and worth were tied to your children. I could multiply more illustrations, but I'll stop. Anything in this world, money, children, marriage, you name it. He takes good things and he's a cosmocrator. He's a little God maker and he wants you to worship and build your life and world around something else. You say, Brad, how do you understand all this? Because I lived it. This was the breakthrough for me in our bad marriage. Apart from her repenting and getting with, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this was the breakthrough in our marriage. We just celebrated 30 years of marriage and we'll say to each other and other people, We've had 25 great years of marriage because the first five were all out war because I couldn't see and she couldn't see, but I won't talk about her stuff because she's not up here, but she had stuff. But my stuff was I'd taken a good thing and turned it into a God thing and it was destroying our marriage. And I felt so threatened by her because I said, I can't be this kind of husband you want and do ministry the way I think I need. You're in my way, you're a threat. You're bringing me down. Oh my goodness, I married the wrong person. I would say all these hurtful things because I thought, this is how you have to do ministry. You gotta work 80 hours a week. You gotta go day and night. You gotta cancel date nights and Candyland board game and all kinds of stuff. Anybody in the church that says, can you play your guitar for our cookout? Yes. Can you pray for this shopping center? Yes, 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 yes. And someone had to help me see that wasn't all driven by the glory of God. It was for the glory of Brad. Because I love being loved. And if you go like that, will your church love you? Oh my goodness, they'll love you. And then your wife will hate you, but whatever, that's one person. I got 650 people that love me. And so here's how this works. As I go home to this person who doesn't love me anymore, I think, oh, this is awkward. I'll just go do more. And I'll just go to the church more and more. And the more I did it, the more they loved me, the more she hated me. See what's going on here? But I had to be made aware of idolatry. I took a good thing. Is it good to serve the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Could that cross the line and you not recognize I'm going this hard and doing this much, not for God, but for me. It was such a breakthrough, not just in our marriage, but in my ministry. So that I wrote a book called Gospel Treason, where I talk about this, how Satan's favorite strategy is idolatry. The war that is going on is actually a worship war, folks. It's a worship war at its heart and hub for Satan to constantly get you, just bump you slightly off from something good and make it a God thing. I think it's interesting now, only after I studied this passage, when the book first came out in July 2012, Amazon listed it in the category of spiritual warfare. I remember thinking, it's not spiritual warfare, it's marriage, it's Christian living. It's... And now after studying this, I thought, that was pretty accurate. It is. It is spiritual warfare. Don't buy those books that try to name princes and special formula prayers. You want to fight smarter and understand your, your enemy's favorite strategy? Learn more about idolatry and ask God to show you what yours are. That can be a game changer. 
Who is your real enemy? And what are his favorite strategies? Let me give you one more strategy. Number four. Don't ever get over how powerless you are and how powerful God is to wage this war through you. That's your choice to engage. But please know, as you step up to the front lines to engage, it's okay to have this overwhelming sense of, I don't think I'm going to win. I don't even want to be here. I feel inadequate. I don't think I have enough power. Perfect. Perfect. Don't get over that. Because it's in our weakness that he is strong. For his strength is perfected in Weakness, you got nothing. Read John 15. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Nowhere in this passage does it say, oh, notice the power you have. Notice the authority you have. Remember the power that you have. Nowhere in this passage does it talk that way. He starts in verse 10. Look at it. Finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then he closes it out in verse 18 saying, praying Always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. I wish I had more time for this. This could be a whole sermon just on prayer. But note this. This passage informs us of the purpose of prayer. It's in warfare. America has taken prayer and tried to turn it into a name it and claim it. If I pray in Jesus' name and I do this just right, I can get whatever I want. And prayer has been turned into this thing where it's God is some kind of cosmic Santa Claus and I've got a direct line if I do this right. And he'll have to give me whatever I want that's padding my life and making it more fun. Hogwash. And it's why some people are so frustrated in America and say, oh, prayer doesn't work. It doesn't work. No, it doesn't work when you don't use it how it was designed to be used trying to use it like some little intercom to beep the mater d to bring more goodies to your suite. That is not the purpose of prayer. I love what John Piper says in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. He says, we cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. Listen to his quote. Life is war. That's not all it is, but it is always that. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It's not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances. See, he's assuming you're going to be a part of that wave that's advancing and engaging and seeking to live for him. If you're not and you're just laid back, cruise control, and just trying to use prayer as give me what I want, go home and watch the stupid TV Christian shows for that. But you didn't find that in the Bible. You want to see prayer begin to happen? You say, oh my goodness, It's when you're praying along the lines of what God is intending to do anyway, which is advance his glory and his kingdom. And you say, I want to get in on that, but I'm so weak. I don't have what I need. Would you help me? Would you give me air support? Would you do the carpet bombing ahead of me while I go? I'm going, but oh my goodness, I feel like all I got is this. And it's just me on foot going in there. And God's like, yeah, but pray. I'll do more than you could ever do in your own strength. You go by faith. I'm going with you. That's how you use prayer and see God answer prayers. What does it mean to be strong in the Lord? We've got these phrases sometimes to think, okay, but what does that mean to be strong in the Lord? Let me help you. It's not that complicated. 
It's actually fairly simple. You know what he's called you to do in that marriage. And you're at, you're at loggerheads with each other. You're at a jam. You know what he's called you to do with those kids or with your money or with that situation at work or whatever. But you think, Ugh, I don't feel adequate. But you step out and you do it even though you don't feel you have the power to do it. And you step forward with your mind filled with the promises of who God is and what he's done and what he's promised to do. And listen to me. In your moment of obedience, while you're not feeling it, but by faith you go anyway, he meets you in that moment with his power. That's what it means to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Here's what some of you are doing. I want to feel it. And I want to know that I can do it when I get there. And then I'll go, Lord. Doesn't work that way. It's when you know what he's told you to do, you feel completely unable, inadequate, and you go anyway. You step into that to do what he says to do. He meets you in your moment of obedience. We live by what? Faith, not sight, not sight. I want to feel it. I want to see it first. So let's get practical. As I close this whole thing out. I want to break it down for you because I didn't take, I could have taken six messages and said, what's the shield? What's the sword? What's the helmet? And sometimes people do that. It's not wrong. I chose not to do that. Because really, I had a friend one time that said, every day I get out of bed and I, he, he would just make believe. I put on the helmet of salvation and he pretend he's putting it on. Whatever. If all you do next is run a comb through your hair, suck down a pop tart and head out the front door, you did not just put on the armor of God. That's not what it's talking about. Pretend you're putting on these pieces of armor. All these pieces of armor are tied to spiritual disciplines, my friend. So that's what I want to talk to you about next. You have a very real enemy with power and resources that are way beyond anything that you've got. And he rages against you every day. And so if that is the case, what are you doing to stand against him? And to resist and to not just be swallowed up and sucked along with the flow. And end up a spiritual casualty. What are you doing to put on the whole armor of God and to be strong in the Lord? And where and when are you setting aside time to pray and cry out to God to give you air support as you head into a war every day, starting with your home and then the workplace and the neighborhood? When and where are you setting aside time to cry out to God and say, Oh God, got to have you, need your Help. If your answer is Brad, until this moment, honestly, I've given almost no thought to that. If that's you, then this would be a great day to repent. You're waking up every day in a war. You, you need to have a mindset. Listen to me. Getting dressed for success is not your biggest problem. You need to recognize that the moment you swing your feet out of the bed and your feet hit the floor, you are going to war. Because, yes, you have peace with God, but the moment you came into peace with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, Satan declared war on you. You have an enemy. You're a threat. He's against you. He wants to take you out. So what would you wear? And what would you do if you knew you were going to war? Well, let me tell you what this looks like for me. Just one beggar sharing with other beggars where he found food. So I'm not saying this is the only way to do this. But by God's grace, and I do hope to finish well, and I hope you'll pray for me, 
because I know it's not automatic, but I'm 53 and I haven't yet done anything heinous and been disqualified from ministry. But I know, because of this passage and others, Satan would love to take Brad Bigney out. Out. So few men and women finish well, folks. What are you doing? Here's what I do. I'm not saying it's the only thing to do. This shouldn't surprise those of you that know me well. The night before, each day, I intentionally and thoughtfully lay out my clothes in the bathroom. My jeans of choice are folded there. My shoes are there. Socks are in one shoe. Underwear and a curled up belt, another shoe. T-shirt, shirt, done. Why? I've already decided I'm wearing clothes. I don't want to have to think about it the next morning. There's other things I need to do. When the alarm goes off, I don't want to stand there saying, oh, I don't know, I don't know. Do these shows, shoes go with this? All oh, that's decided the next night before. Done. We're wearing clothes. But because of this passage, I'm, that's not all I'm doing. Because I know I'm going to war in the living room next to my favorite chair. Is my quiet time Bible already sitting there? God help the person that moves any of my stuff. It's sitting there, ready to go. And oh, by the way, it's a John MacArthur through the Bible in a year daily Bible. Why? Because I'm trying to eliminate any excuse my flesh will come up with to not meet with the Lord. And here's what happens sometimes. I don't know where to read. Oh, it's such a big book. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Where, where would I even begin? John MacArthur, it's October 23rd. Read this Jeremiah 33 in the Old Testament. Read this Psalm. Read these two Proverbs. Read this part of the New Testament. Any questions? No? Good. Get going. Right there. And if I do it every day, I will get through the entire Bible in a year. But there's more. I've got a basket next to my chair with pens and pencils and highlighters of the right color. So that as I read, I have an instrument in my hand and I'm wanting to engage. When I read with something in my hand that's thinking, I'm looking for something. I'm looking for, like I've got all four stands highlighted in orange. I want to see patterns. I want to get something out of this. My mind stays alert. I don't want my eyes to move across words. And when I'm done, say, what would you read? I, I don't know. If you read expecting to see things and mark things, you will read more with your mind engaged. I've got, I've got a notepad in case God tells me something for me, an insight, a conviction, a help, a hope, a verse I want to memorize. And I write it down. But because I'm 53, there's more. I've got a lamp on my right and a lamp on my Left, yay, verily, two lamps with super bright bulbs that could burn the house down if I forget to turn these puppies off. Because part of my problem is like, I can't see. Dim yellow lighting, no good for 53. You could land airplanes on my Bible. Boom. It is like bright. Hello, there's my Bible. Oh, but there's more. Some mornings my eyes still say, no, no, we won't go. We can't focus. We can't focus. I kid you not, I'll be sitting there thinking, I've got trifocals and I'm like, I don't know where to put my head to see that sentence. I'm going to hurt my neck. Is it middle? Is it up? Is it down? I have solved that. I reach into my basket. I've got honking big glasses. We take off the regular glasses and I've got glasses that the lenses look like the bottom of Coke bottles. And I put those on. It's like one big magnifying glass. Like there's the word. We're going to read. We got light. We can see the words. We've got markers. We've got a Bible that tells me where to read. Oh, but there's more. I don't want to be nodding off and wake up with drool and say, I was reading my Bible. Oh, darn, it's time to go. I slept. So we're doing coffee Bible time. So the night before, I make preparations in the kitchen and please don't move my stuff. Right there is 12 ounces of purified water in a measuring cup. Right there is my pour over cone, which is the way to drink coffee. 
and I've got a filter already in it on the mug of choice for the day, and my two scoops of beans that we'll be grinding are already in the grinder, so that all I have to do is shuffle in there, hit that button, put the 12 ounces of water in the kettle, and stand there and say, oh, wow, I wish I was sleeping. Water's boiling, beans are ground, I've got coffee. Now, you don't have to be obsessed about coffee or clothes, but you better get dressed for the war. How you do it, I leave it up to you. That's what I'm doing. I am fighting to do this, not out of legalism, folks. Not out of legalism. So you may be pushing back now and saying, okay, 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 I get it. I should prepare. How, but here's the human flesh, right? But Brad, honestly, how often can I just skip all that and just do the Pop-Tart head out the door thing, huh? That's fair. Let me help you. You can do that as often as you want to have a terrible, awful, no good, bad day. And as often as you'd like to be at greater risk to become a spiritual casualty. It's your choice. Now, don't hear me say legalism. Don't hear me saying, because you'll have a wreck on the interstate because God's mad because you didn't read the Bible. He's not mad. He loves you the same any day. You're just naked. That's all. You're naked spiritually. And he didn't promise to put clothes on you because you sucked the Pop-Tart down and headed out and said... And here's what I hear, and, and oof, try to be compassionate. Mercy's not my, my main thing, but I'm trying. Get around Christians, and they're like, oh, I'm so discouraged and so depressed, and I just feel overwhelmed. Pray for me. Hey, where are you reading your Bible? I'm not. It just, I'm not that disciplined, and it's just, oh, yeah. Talk to the hand. It, it'd be like, listen to me. Seriously, if, if we're going with war, right, track with me. What if soldiers were sitting around? And one's like, I'm shot up in the leg. I got shrapnel in my spine. My head is lacerated. I've taken hits right in the chest. I keep falling down when I try to engage. the. In- They're in a foxhole. They are on the front lines. They're in a war. They're not back there thinking about maybe running the communication system. And the guys are like, dude, so sorry. Oh, my goodness. But someone says, well, you are putting your boots on every day and not going out barefoot. It would be hard to stand barefoot. You are putting on your body armor. You're putting on your helmet. And then this awkward moment where he's like, nah, it's so tedious every day just doing that. And it just feels monotonous. And I don't have time. And they were like, dude. Yeah, we, we want others to pray for Pray for me. Your prayers for the lazy Christian who's acting like no, there's no war, will not make up for their lack of putting on the whole armor of God. Amen. Get up. Get up. You got to. The stakes are high. Eternity is in view. This is not legalism. You got an enemy who wants you dead. And those of you that are married and have kids, the impact of your spiritual bankruptcy will ripple over on your spouse, your kids, neighbors that knew you were a Christian. The stakes are high. The enemy is real, but God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. But he has not promised to treat you like a toddler and dress you each day. That's your choice. And so, folks, when I sit there and I read God's word and I'll reread a sentence because I realize I wasn't even thinking. I'm five verses down and I haven't even been thinking about it. I was thinking about something else. I just start over. So I'm being honest, right? This is a fight. But it's worth fighting. When I sit there to read, it's because I want to get a fresh grip on the sword of the spirit, which, by the way, in that passage is your only offensive weapon. And as I sit there, 
I meditate on a phrase or a verse and even think, I think I'm going to memorize that because I recognize my shield's been dropping. And he says, above all, take up the shield of faith with, with which you'll be able to extinguish the fiery darts. Darts are coming in. I get depressed, folks. I get overwhelmed. I feel dark. I want to stop. I want to run from being your pastor. I actually memorized a verse in Jeremiah that says, I have not run from being your shepherd. I thought, that's so good because I want to run from you some weeks. Sorry. It just feels overwhelming. I got my own problems and you're emailing with yours. And it's okay. I'm your pastor. So I'm praying that I won't run from you. Oh my goodness. I memorize a verse so that I can get my shield of faith back up. Because what's the only thing that feeds faith? Faith comes by hearing and hearing. So I want to hear God's word some more so that my faith is built and I get the shield back up. And then I sit there and I pray over that scripture and I pray for my day and I pray for the meetings and I pray for my family and I pray for my neighborhood and I pray for my nation, asking God to give air support and go ahead of me as I choose, knowing I'm going into enemy territory on that campus or in that neighborhood or in that job site. I'm saying, God, protect me. God, empower me. God, help me to discern evil and good. God, give me power and wisdom and ability beyond what I have because I've got nothing. Oh, listen to me. How I long for Grace Fellowship to be able to say along with the Apostle Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You will not fight. You will not finish. You will not keep the faith unless you choose to put into practice what Paul is telling us in this passage. I want to ask you to bow your heads because we got one minute, 60 seconds that I want you to think right now. What would God have you do in response to this message? Don't just roll out of here thinking, okay, well, wow, that was neat. Do you need to wake up with a mindset that you're going to war? And what would that look like? Do you need to choose to stand intentionally because you've just been going with the flow? Have you been thinking your husband or wife or boss is your real enemy? And you need to realize that's not your real enemy. What would God say to you that would better prepare you to engage and to live out the gospel in all your earthly relationships, starting in your home? What do you need to change when you get home? Do you need to walk to your alarm clock and set it 15, 20 minutes earlier so that you could start getting up and get spiritually dressed rather than just watch Good Morning America and make coffee and suck down a Pop-Tart? What would God have you do? Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us all things pertaining to life and godliness, giving us what we need for the war. And you have all power. And you have all resources and wisdom. And you've given us direct access to your throne for air support. You've given us your word, the sword. You've given us the shield of faith that is fed by your word. Oh God, alert us, alarm us, rattle us. Not so that we'd be scared, but so that we'd be prepared for the war and not become a spiritual casualty. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.